Here's the amazing thing and the timing of your question is that probably 10 days ago, maybe just a week, Nate sent me a link, texted me a link to a Craigslist ad that has my old sawmill in Glide, the town where I finished growing up, for sale again. And he said, is this it? And I looked at the 14 pictures on the Craigslist ad. Sure enough, my sawmill's for sale. Welcome to another episode of the Essential Craftsman Podcast. I'm Nate. I've got my dad, the Essential Craftsman. How are you doing? Good, man. Hi, guys. We've got a real kind of junk drawer of a video here, but I think you're going to like it because we're going to just keep moving from one interesting topic to the next kind of as they either occur to us or show up on my little page of notes here. And the first item is actually sitting in front of us. We have our new water heater for the spec house that just was delivered today and it's tankless. Have you ever installed a tankless or I've utilized never, one? I've never installed or utilized a tankless. This is a Renai, but my, my friend Phil Rokas, who you guys have seen, and you're going to see a lot more of Phil like soon, and his brother Mike, another good friend, a plumber, have been telling me about Renai on-demand gas water heaters for a long time, and I'm anxious to put one in. I They gave us a good deal on this, and I spoke to the rep good. or the... Um, the guy in the area and we're going to have him on. He's obsessed with water heaters. It was hilarious. <laughs> he was telling me how they were invented like in 1920s or 30s really? or something like that. Really? In other words, they've been around a long time and it, at least in his mind, there's just no question that it's the superior way. And, uh, I, I've never even I've never taken a shower under one. I don't so I don't know I, what it's like. I haven't but, either, but anything that makes good hot water is just fine with me. So we'll see how this works. Right. Exactly. And the other item that is old that we just put our hands on is our garage door opener system, which you listeners, if you're listening to this um, kind of live, you probably haven't seen that yet, but that was also invented in the 20s. Did you know that? No, I had no idea. Really? It was basic. No, 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 no. Yeah, yeah. 19, I'm sorry. 1920s, um, right? Kind of when cars, right? Shortly after cars were invented, this guy realized like he had to park them somewhere and the original doors were just huge normal sure. swinging, swinging doors. barn doors yeah and the guy who came up with it is the founder of overhead door like the, no kidding yeah because we put an overhead door in jeff wickstrom is my local friend that's been doing that here right. for a long time no kidding They're he the, was the first yeah well he that he developed and owned the patent on it to for some extent of time and that i'm sure it's been sold a lot of times since but that sure. company still very much intact has can trace its heritage back to the the guy who invented it the granddaddy of them all and we're i i this is fresh because i'm working on this video and there's some neat photos of his kind of little display garage door at the time and i was just thinking how neat that must have been to see something that's never been done before this gigantic door suspended up in the air mm -hmm. i don't obviously well actually i'm sorry it he also invented the the electric opener like in 1926, so just no a couple years later. So, man, there was a lot of stuff going on. I mean, think about, you know, buildings were getting tall mm -hmm. and and dams were getting big and airplanes were beginning to play a role and yeah. cannons were getting exponentially bigger and, and, and. Yeah, yeah, it's pretty neat. All right, well, um, let's get into our list of questions and voicemail. This is going to be a little bit of a combo of a voicemails and some questions that came in through comments over the last few months. Cool. Hi, Scott. Hi, Nate. It's Ray here from Southampton in the UK. 
I'd really, uh, I'm a latecomer to your channel and I've been catching up on all the previous episodes and I, I really enjoy it, learned so much and put it into my job, which is a, a landscaping carpenter, not as a contractor. I work for our local authority. What I'd like to ask is, uh, are you planning to build a deck on the spec house? And um, if so, what are your opinions against composite decking and wooden decking? Thanks very much for everything. I really do enjoy watching uh, and enjoy all the, all the good work you put into it. Thanks very much indeed. Okay. Thanks, Raymond. Good question. So my rule of thumb here. So when I got, I got a contractor's license for the first time, uh, 1978, probably just right after getting married here in Roseburg, it was easy. You walked in, you paid a little money, you filled out a form, you were a contractor. I had a set of nail bags and a pickup, and so I was qualified. And as soon as I built all of the decks for my friends and one or two carports, I was out of work because I didn't know how to market. And word of mouth, I couldn't wait long enough for that to happen because I was pretty weak as a contractor then. But since then, and moving back to Oregon, I built quite a few decks, uh, probably, probably a third of them out of wood, um, let's say... 50% out of composite material and 20% suspended concrete decks. And Raymond, I know you didn't ask me this, but hands down a suspended concrete deck, a stamped concrete deck, any kind of a decorative finish with a, with a cable railing system is a premium deck for my money, but it is a lot of money. So that's sort of an aside. We'll talk about that later and probably do a video tour, a couple of the suspended decks I did. But if the choice is between wood, a natural building product, and composite, whether it's Trex or TimberTech or whatever the brand names are available in Europe, I always tell people the first criteria is how long are you going to own this thing? And if the answer is five years or less, put wood in because wood can easily be kept nice for five years and around here. And if, if it's a rot-resistant wood, a red cedar or a redwood um it can be kept really nice for five years and pretty nice for 10 years and functional for 15 or 20 if you clean it and oil it every single year, but the maintenance will devour you after about five years. But if you're going to own it for five years or more, and especially into the 10 or 15 year range, do a composite. If the deck is in full sun, you need to be aware that that stuff gets super hot. On a summer day, it, it accumulates heat like crazy and it, you can't walk on it barefooted and you really can't hardly put your hand on a railing after it's been on you know a, a 90 or 95 or 100 degree day it just gets too hot to touch so that's the downside the upside is very low maintenance um, they last a long time you got to pay more attention to the substructure because the substructure on a composite deck better be ready to last 40 years too because the composite's going to last a long time now um but they and, don't always last a long time. In other words, there's been a lot of composite decks that have sort of failed and yep. sagged, and they you can be disappointed yes, with you a can. composite deck, right? Great point. The first couple generations, especially of Trex, just went bad. I had to replace two decks, and Trex stood behind the material, but the first generation of Trex, the, it just failed. UV, it deteriorated. You could scrape it off with your toe. Since then, I have more confidence. I mean, these things have come a long ways. 
But your point about spans, if you don't keep a very tight center on your joists, like they say 16 inch on a full inch and a half um, composite board, I would be tending to go 12 inches on center on the substructure because otherwise that deck is not going to stay flat. So good point. Um, poking one other hole in your little story, but you just... Thank you so much. <laughs> you you just put a deck on a few years ago on your house, which you'll definitely own more than five or 10 years, and it's wood. So how do you square that circle? My choice at the time was I was adding on to the house that I'm living in now for my mom and dad so they could age in place. The deck is in the shade, so the sun's not devouring it, and the substructure is built to accommodate a composite deck. I put the joists on tight centers. It's a very, very flat, very rigid substructure, and I just put western red cedar on the top. Hmm. That'll be good for 10 years, easy, maybe yeah. more, and then the substructure is good for longer than that, so I can just pull pull that decking off there, throw a composite down. It's not very big and probably be about even. And the fact that it's not a big deck, and maybe this is something people should factor in, should be taken into account, because a small deck is a small deal yeah, either that's way. Right. That's but if right. you're talking about a big fancy deck with a hot tub built in and yep. all kinds of stuff, this would be a much more serious question. So That's right. The spread on dollars gets bigger and bigger. All right. Our next question is coming from Steve. Hi, Scott and Nate. This is Steve from Provo, Utah. I had a question for you. Have you ever traded work for kind? <clears throat> in other words, my father was an accountant and he would um, sometimes take payment for his services by milk from a, a dairyman or carpentry work <clears throat> from a, um, some of his clients that needed to pay him. Um, enjoy the show. Thanks very much. Yeah, I have quite a bit over the years, actually. I have, I have been that carpenter trading against dental work before. I went the first house that I built for my family in Las Vegas, I traded the dirt work. I traded bringing in the gravel and trenching and compaction against framing a house for a guy. I learned there that it's always a mistake to be trading the labor of your hands against the labor of a machine. You just get so far behind so fast. Yeah. You know, it just was it was um it was fair. I mean, it was a deal I signed up for and in a dollar to dollar analysis it was great, but I will I never carpenter against yellow iron. Yeah. Um I I've trade work a lot with other tradesmen. I've done that all the time. In fact, a lot of tradesmen do that. You find somebody that can wire, or you can pour concrete, you trade back and forth, and if you can trust each other, it's just the best of all possible worlds. Uh, I've traded for furniture. I've done work. I think I traded for a truck one time. Not much of a truck. I, I did. I worked off a truck one time. So the answer is yes. That's one thing about being in the trades that you can trade. It's easy to trade, but, but there's a couple things. I mean, just because you're trading doesn't mean you're coming out ahead. It just means you didn't have to make the money and pay the taxes, maybe. And it's easy to get into a deal that just doesn't work out that well, to where if you would have had overtime work available to you at work, you might have been smarter to work for the money and buy the product. But not all the time. Sometimes it's just a re sometimes you cover a lot more ground in trading and you can certainly you can certainly develop relationships of trust that way. Probably has everything to do with the person you're trading yeah. with. 
Yeah, see, that's the beauty of money. Yeah. I mean, money standardizes the trading of our effort and our product, right? And yeah. so it makes every market more perfect than the imperfect market of, of trading services. Yeah. But if you've got somebody you can trust, hang with it, and it'll be good for both of you. But the mindset that you have to have is not getting all... It, if you're worried about getting ahead on this deal, it's only going to be a one-shot thing. But if you're equally... if you. I, I, my friend George Smith, the guy that built the crane for me on my truck, he and I have traded back and forth a lot. And it was a lesson to me to find out there are some people who don't want to get ahead of you. They would rather have you ahead of them. Explain being ahead meaning. Um, there, there are some people who would prefer to give more in the trade than they get hmm. in a particular relationship. And man, when you find somebody like that and you're both functioning from that position, it's a great thing. It and and pretty soon everybody and nobody can really keep track at the end of a few years of doing that who's ahead or behind, but everybody knows that it's been pleasant and profitable and productive. So, mm. yeah, you you have to be play nice and you'll be glad you did it. Okay, our next question is from Tom. I have probably watched the sawmill story video at least a dozen times at this point. And it is very intriguing. And I admire the story and legacy attached to it. So my question is, what was the fate of that sawmill? Or is it still in use and just not talked about yet? due to a potential upcoming video. <laughs> Great question. So first of all, let me say this, that making that sawmill video was really hard for Nate. And it took him, how many hours did you spend on that? Would you I get? don't know. It was a long time ago, but it was at least triple any video I had done at that point. Yeah. Maybe not anymore, but. And it was so complex. I could tell. I mean, he was living in Mesa and I was up here and I, we were sending voiceover back and forth and I could just tell that it was hard for him to wrap his head around how to make a story out of this family history. But I think he did a great job. It, it, I, I think probably it's my favorite video for a lot of reasons. It's not so much how to make a story because the story exists. But what I've oh. learned about filmmaking, it's, it's the exact best way to tell it in okay. like videos and words, you know. Okay. Because because um, that was your you were jumping in a bathtub of ice water there trying to deal with that. All that disjointed information, right? Yes, um, yes, and no. It, it was it was definitely a good, a big learning experience, and it was the first video that we had ever done that was just a lot fuzzier in terms of how it could be told. For yeah. example, lots of the how-to and pro tips. There's that's the information, and you convey it, but that that story could have been told a hundred different ways, yeah. sort of. And and it was so it was kind of deciding like what's the optimum way and I, I don't know if we got it perfect but it certainly turned out you know as good as we could have hoped yeah i i wouldn't change a thing and it's it's interesting that we were only able to do that because just as i was moving away from wyoming after taking that sawmill back there i thought that i needed to make a video for so i could sell the mill so there was a fellow who had a video store one of the first like the first one i ever saw butch sanders and i traded him speaking of working in kind i traded him a bunch of slab wood, firewood, for coming out and making a video documentary of that sawmill. So that's, and it was on VHS for all those years. What was it, 30 years or so that we carried it around and thought I lost it and found it, got it back. And 
made another copy. And so Nate was working off a of VHS and he, you had to, I don't know how we got that into a digital format for you, but yeah. he was cutting apart a grainy old thing. So anyhow, that's not the question. Here's the amazing thing and the timing of your question is that probably 10 days ago, maybe just a week, yeah. Nate sent me a link, texted me a link to a Craigslist ad that has my old sawmill in Glide, the town where I finished growing up, for sale again. And he said, is this it? And I looked at the 14 pictures on the Craigslist ad. Sure enough, my sawmill's for sale. And it's set up nicely, and somebody's put a 350 on it. They took off the old 292, put a 350 on, ran it through a, a truck transmission. I assume it was a four-speed truck transmission instead of the three-on-the-tree um, transmission that I got out of the 1960 Nova, I think, if I remember right. So, yeah, the sawmill is— And he's sawing wood with it. The, the owner. There were photographs of him sawing wood and the list of the types of material he had yeah. cut. And there were pictures of it, and he has a box of new bits for the saw blade. Yeah. He Either the saw blade's been changed out or he mismeasured. He says it's 49-inch. It's a 50-inch saw blade, and it looks like the same blade to me. Hmm. But I'm going to go up there and visit with him and knock on his door and say, hey, I can probably answer some questions about this thing for you and may take Nate with me to film it, or I may just take the GoPro. You're going to buy it? Ah. Uh, you know, I asked Cy the other day. I said, Cy, my sawmill's for sale. Should I buy it back? And he thought about it. Now, when you're talking to Cy, if you ask him a question, expect him to think about his answer. And there was probably 60 seconds of dead air. And he said, no, you got enough going on. Yeah. And he's right. You know, mm -hmm. I've got enough going on. But if I did buy it, here's mm -hmm. what I would do. I would take the husk off. I would take the arbor off, and I would reconfigure the husk. That's what holds the mechanism to put a bandsaw on there. I'd put about a four or a five inch wide bandsaw, run it probably around 24 inch shivs. Mm. So it'd get, increase the, decrease the sawdust, increase the efficiency, leave, the, leave everything else the same, mm. probably put a hydraulic motor on the feed works, maybe some hydraulic outriggers for raising it up so I'm not jacking it up and putting it on stumps and, uh, and cut the, and then I would put a little barking head in front of the, in front of the saw so there's a little, set of knives knocking the dirt off the bark as it comes in so you're mm. cutting a clean line mm. no i'm not even thinking about it right <laughs> yeah, obviously <laughs> can you tell <laughs> <laughs> it's probably safer with a bandsaw blade on there yes, too right much safer much safer much more efficient yeah better all right our next question is from ben he's from new zealand he wants to get into blacksmithing he's wondering if he should get by with a railroad steel anvil or spend the twelve hundred dollars to buy a real one Apparently, anvils are even more difficult and expensive to find there than they are here. So what, what would you recommend? For new blacksmith. Okay. So there is nothing in the world wrong with a piece of railroad iron as an anvil, except it's just not complete and it's not heavy. But an anvil can be anything that will resist your hammer blow. There, you know, check out our video about the blacksmith's anvil. And Nate found these pictures of these men in Africa working on the ground what, on what appears to be a rock. So that's an anvil. They've, they've got mythic status and, and uh, you know, incredible utility with the London pattern and modern anvils. But if you're aching to start blacksmithing, get a chunk of steel and start and keep your eyes open for, your, for the real anvil. Because there's something about starting to do something that starts to line up connections and so I'm not a new age guy, 
but there's an energy around blacksmithing. And once you start it, the energy kind of increases and your conversations expand and people are talking to you and you will find that real anvil, maybe for less money or for some trade. It'll show up, I think, easier if you've started blacksmithing on a piece of railroad iron than if you're just waiting and watching and wishing. So I'd start, man. I'd dive in. Yeah, plus uh, 1200 bucks is a lot. And who knows, maybe maybe it's not as great as you might think. You know, you're making this big investment. Now you have this anvil. So give it a try. If you spend a year and you're really having a great time and making a lot of neat stuff, then then it'll be an easy decision. You'll, of course, be ready to upgrade and spend the money. But take take a, take a railroad anvil for a test drive. And then... Uh, so that, there's a fellow, Kevin Eckerman. You're going to meet him on the channel. He's an excellent electrician, and he runs Cascade Electric, um, has for a long time. And I infected him with a blacksmithing virus probably 15 years ago. And he found an anvil and he bought it. And um, a friend of mine built a propane forge for him and he dove in. And then he got some financial reversals. They had they had some problems, some health problems and just some bad luck. Sold his anvil, got all his money back, sold the forge, actually to Ken Jordan. And mm. uh, so he backed back out, got all his money back. And then the next time he was well again, he immersed himself deeper in his photography interest, and so it was worth a it was worth a shot for Kev. He may come back to it someday. And Ben, you could do the same thing. So just, I would say, start. Just get your hand on it and start. Yeah, it is kind of a neat thing about blacksmithing how old that craft is and how many people have blacksmith without an anvil. Yeah. It's probably a there's probably a whole lot more people who've done it without an anvil than people who actually have. You know, by numbers, one, yeah. that's exactly right. It's <laughs> like Darwin's assertion that the fossil record had to be transitional species. There's been more in the past doing it than there is now or in in, in the foreseeable future. And so I was reminded of this is off topic slightly, but um, I was reminded of the same concept with fishing because you can totally get serious about gear and poles and everything. And then you go somewhere like Mexico where guys are catching huge fish by just wrapping the fishing line around a yes, pop can. like that. And they're just catching fish, and and they don't. Ha there's no gear um, other than the line and the lure, mm -hmm. and it's kind of the same thing. It's, it's exactly the same thing. The anvil is not the blacksmithing. It's just like <laughs> one tool, although I, I might be getting out of my lane here. No, well, not much. And, and you know, the, the, the uh, old aphorism cliche that a poor workman blames his tools. Ben, you'll be able to blame a railroad anvil for some of your difficulty, but if you can learn to make nice things on a piece of railroad iron anvil, small things, stick to the small things, get the feel of your hammer, you'll be ready to tear it up on a real anvil. And, and then the other point, and I'm all over the map here, but anvils are also useful, even if you're not blacksmithing. Like uh, auto mechanics and my buddy Dustin, who we did an episode with recently, was telling me about a guy in their air. He's a pilot, and in the uh, airport mechanic shop, has got an anvil there mm -hmm. for solving problems. Solving and problems. so, depending on what your life is like, you may need one anyways. So <laughs> we're not helping you at all. <laughs> yeah, pick what you want. Just like everything else, man. Pick what you want to believe. Yeah, in other words, I think twice about bringing your questions because. <laughs> all right. Okay, next question is from Dominic, and he's wondering about B-roll footage. And what I'm going to do, I'm going to set that question aside and let the video production type questions accumulate and maybe put that into its own podcast episode. Um, so Dominic, will get to that. And if any of you have interest in that side of what we're doing, feel free to send the questions and we will at some point try to 
put all that in one area in one podcast. Okay, and we got a comment from Heath. Hi, Nate and Scott. Uh, this is Heath McAfee from Ohio. I'm a uh, drilling engineer for Shell Oil Company. And I uh, really like your podcast and your show channel. Um, one uh, guest I think would be great for the podcast, although it would be a, a tough one to get, I think, is Mike Rowe. Um, you know, his values tend to align a lot with uh, a lot of your guys' content, especially on the trade schools. I'd be interested to see uh, a sit down with you guys and him. Amen, Heath. Um, so Mike Rowe is a giant. Uh, he's a guy who has, he's, he's created his own space. I mean, not a lot of guys can do that, right? Just by force of personality and, and raw talent, cre- just create his own, his own niche on the face of the earth, but he's done it. And he, he is able to talk about some things in a way that nobody else can talk about, like safety, work safety. Mike Rowe says things, practical observations about work safety and the war on work that has been declared, undeclared, declared war on work that has been going on in the United States and Western Europe for, well, probably since World War II. I just salute him for saying those things. His his TED talk about safety third, mm-hmm. is that how he phrased it? I think so. Yeah, safety third. I mean, I, I think these things all the time, and on the channel, I'm almost afraid to say them because it just touches such a raw nerve for so many people. But Mike Rowe can say it and and defend it and make it rational. Yeah, that is it. It really is impressive because when you have something to, it's easy to just kind of be quiet and keep your head down when you have something to lose, which yeah. I think is why young people are generally the ones, well, rioting like we're seeing. Yeah. And, going nuts got nothing to lose baby in in some way yeah mike rose got this huge reputation and this beautiful career and he's saying uncomfortable things without yeah. even thinking about it. it's really inspiring it is very inspiring because we've learned and with our little bitty footprint some things you think oh you know maybe i just am not going to say that have a fit of sanity and keep my mouth shut that's kind of a new phenomenon for me but but i would love to have any kind of a conversation with Mike Rowe just because you can tell how smart he is yeah. and what and and how he, his he's just thinking much broader than anybody else and by the way he's got a great bass voice did you know that he did were you I learned that he used to sing in barbershop quartets yeah. did we talk about that no but i've heard him and his his voice is just like a this is a canon yeah it's he's huge. got an operatic yeah. basso profundo voice you yeah. know so there would be a lot of things to talk about with Mike Rowe but the chances of doing that may be small, but uh, no way. I'll I'll track him down. I, I'll be I'm, I can be vicious and like hounding people. So <laughs> watch out, micro. I got my sights on you. <laughs> watch out. And Mike. in terms of podcast guests, a, a drilling engineer for Shell Oil sounds pretty interesting. Also, darn Heath. right. I, I don't drilling just kind of blows my mind to go like hundreds and thousands of feet, yeah, into the earth and knowing what we're aiming at and extracting. I don't get that. Yeah, but I'm glad you do it. Yeah. So Matt, yeah, how about that? Heath, send us an email. Yeah. Okay. Um, there was a comment. I don't have the name of the of the individual who left it. Can you make a guide to construction site etiquette? Don't you don't have to give the full uh, answer here, but what are your initial off the cuff thoughts of construction site etiquette? D- is he looking for the etiquette etiquette of how to be polite on a job site 
and get along or the etiquette of how to be productive? Because they're not necessarily the same thing, although sometimes they are. Well, I, I've got one for you. Park far away. Don't, don't <laughs> yeah. drive up and just park right next. And if you guys are experienced, you know that. But Keep your car out of the way. Just walk a little ways so you yeah. don't have to move your truck for some delivery or piece of equipment. How about That's, this? There's one. How about this? If you don't own the ground or if it's not your name that signed the contract, leave your dog in the truck. Okay? Yeah. Leave the dog in the truck. Um, construction site etiquette. There's the old school way of thinking that I fall into all the time about dress for work. You know, um, Make sure you are dressed in a way that, that tells everybody you're going to work. But I see guys in shorts that get work done. So you know, I don't know if that stands up exactly, but still... We might have to put some more thought into that, and um, I don't know. It seems very much like that's that would be the question directed at the superintendent, the property owner, or the customer, because yeah. it's probably just going to change. Like radios, for example, that would yeah. probably count. Although on some, for some companies, it may not matter, but for other people, yeah. So it's probably worth asking whatever applies to that in particular you know, job, in, right? In a real way, at least when I think back when I used to work for other people, there almost is no etiquette on a construction site. A construction site has sort of a um, a prison mentality, uh, a, a, a wartime mentality, um, a barracks mentality, a, a bicycle, um, motorcycle gang mentality. I mean, in a big city, you're going to have a lot of bikers on those crews. Mm -hmm. Those guys pride themselves on don't not having any consideration at all for etiquette but they still have an etiquette i mean they dress for work yeah you know and they they swear a lot that's their etiquette um they they don't there is or was a, an, an element of construction side etiquette that you try to minimize pain i mean you got to be tough or you got to pretend to be tough yeah. because if you're not you're going to find yourself at the bottom of the pecking order right away Here's one thing. If anybody messes with your lunchbox, you better be ready to throw down. Even if you even if you know you can't back it up, you it's it's like a prison mentality. If someone takes advantage of you or um you can't have it. You can't have it if you want to occupy a space where you're ever going to have any responsibility. So, I understand now this is 21st century and it's different, but men are men and competition is competition. And so, I mean, that would just be one thing I would throw out. You got you got to be ready to defend some turf. You got to be ready to recognize the guys that you can rely on. You got to demonstrate you're somebody that can be relied on. All you got to do is roll over once, you know, and throw somebody under the bus with the superintendent when he comes around trying to find out who's responsible for a mistake. Throw one person under the bus one time and see how you get along on that job site from now on. So, yeah. You know, keep your uh, eyes open. You know, I'm thinking that these things sound cultural, like cultures of job sites. And I, is that different than etiquette? I, it, there's a lot, ton of overlap, but the culture of, of job sites sounds a lot like the African savanna in National Geographic. You it, know? it is. And I, okay. and it, it, is. it is. And I'm wondering <laughs> to what extent etiquette um, overlaps with that. We, we might need to kind of think on this a little bit. It's a pretty neat topic. It's a, yeah, I, I hadn't really thought of it, but it goes to another question that we might talk about, and that is union versus non-union. And I can hear some union guys screaming right now that on a union job site, you don't have to worry about all this stuff. Mm -hmm. Well, actually, I've worked on union job sites, and there's still the el jockeying for position. There's still the dirty tricks with lunchboxes. There's still the, the, um, the, the dominance thing that's always trying to be asserted between the guys 
you know, of s- similar stations. So I, it's not much different. Yeah. Um, at least in my in my experience. Well, we appreciate everybody listening and chiming in and sending in these questions. We're still kind of experimenting with the best format to field these. And so if you send us a voicemail, we may read it, we may play it, but here's a tip. If the more concise and tight you can get your question through, the more likely it is to get past our editor and make it to the final cut. So keep that in mind. We listen to it either way, but we got to we got to keep people's attention. So let me, let me just tell you this guy's a brevity Nazi, okay? If it's not brief, it's not making the cut. I'm so. I'm Jack the Ripper. Yeah. You're, I'm you're I'm just slicing kidding. and dicing. Shorten it up. So, thanks everybody for tuning in. As always, you can put comments on the second channel and oh, do us a favor if you don't mind. I still think only a fraction of a percent of our viewers of the Spec House series and of our regular content know this podcast exists. So if you don't mind, if you're ever watching one of our videos at your computer or somewhere where it's easy to leave a comment, and if you're enjoying the show, let let those viewers in a comment know that the podcast is worth checking out as well. Thanks, and we will catch you next time. Thanks.